Hey everybody, welcome to Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. I'm your host, Chris Cosentino. We are here to talk about people that inspire and all my guests are inspiring in so many different ways. And I'm really looking forward to digging deep into how they got to where they are, to the top of their game, how hard they've worked, how much they've given up and how they're giving back. So without further ado, here's our next guest. Hey everybody, welcome to the newest episode of Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. I am here with a schoolyard playground friend, Daniel Hander, Daniel Handler, excuse me, AKA Lemony Snicket. And this is the newest, the newest one, Poison for Breakfast. Welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. It's good to see you. I think we should make it clear that we were not children when we were schoolyard friends. I don't know if that makes it better or worse. Um, I think it's really important to make that clear. We have not known each other that long. No. Uh, our children went to school together. So we used to hang out on the schoolyard and watch our kids run around like crazy kids. Yeah. I basically looked for any other parent who wasn't like a fountain of earnestness. That's just what I think. Like if I met a parent who was like, are you worried about like what kind of sunscreen? Then I was like, uh, you know, excuse me. And if I were, and if I found a parent who was like, shouldn't there be an open bar like right there? Then I would, I would hang out with that parent. That was generally how I ran it. I think, I think there was a moment where I was in, in that playground area and I was like, what the fuck is going on? I think you were standing next to me. And I think that was like the moment where you were just yeah. like, Oh hey, what's going on? <laughs> it was done. Great. Yeah. Dropping <laughs> F-bomb on the playground. It's definitely a way to get my attention. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, God bless the earnest parents, I will say, because they worked really hard at that school. But um but they sometimes, did. yeah, but sometimes like the culture of like uh humorless concern was not that, that I didn't grok that very well. That didn't connect to me. No, it took a lot of the fun out. I mean, I mean, you know, it's like you're you're kind of reliving that moment because your kids are going back, you know, your kids going to school and you get to go yeah. see it through their eyes as an adult. And there was so much angst, I think, by a lot of parents and nervousness and freakouts that it just kind of made it not so much fun until we had go-go Wednesdays or Fridays. What was that? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess also, like, I get nervous when I'm with other parents who can't admit that sometimes it's like a boring gig and an annoying gig. Like, it's a, it's a miracle to raise a child and it's full of glory and joy, but like sometimes... It's boring. It's awful. Yeah, and if, if they can't admit to that at all, that it's just it's like not... It's like couples who say they never fight and you're like, well, I give you another six weeks then. Like, <laughs> or you're just a really shitty liar. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. You hope that they're lying. <laughs> so, you know, it's really amazing to me how you have written one, multiple different books. I mean, we've talked about this in the past, you and I, I always say yeah. what you do is completely crazy. And you said, well, that's the same thing for you to me because I stand there and cook all day but because one I can't fathom the idea of putting all those words that are in my head onto a piece of paper and having it make any logical sense whatsoever you have this inept and incredible ability to make people become part of that story they 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 fall right into the book and breathe and live it and, and it's become 
like Lemony Snicket has become a cultural phenomenon. And, and I'm really, really excited to hear how one, you came up with the pseudonym Lemony Snicket. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, what was, what, what, what was that catalyst to get that all started? Um, desperation was the main catalyst, I would say. Um, yeah, I was, uh, I mean, I had the name, I had the name Lemony Snicket for years before I thought I would do anything with it. And when I never thought I would write anything for children. Um, I was trying to be a novelist. I was straight out of college. I had like a boring office job. And um, I was, I was, uh, I would, uh, part of my first novel, uh, The Basic Eight makes fun of uh, right-wing organizations because that's my idea of a good time. And so I was on the phone with a right-wing organization because I wanted them to mail me like their ridiculous brochure. And still nowadays you can do it online. It's so easy to get online to like fun lists. So people send you their horrible brochures just online, but then you had to call a lot. And so I was on the phone with some woman and I said, yeah, can you send me your materials? And she was like, yeah, sure, what's your name? And then I was like, ooh, like, I don't wanna, I don't wanna say my name to this woman. That's not gonna go well. So I just said something, which was Lemony Snicket. And so then it became a name that my friends and I would use all the time. You know, we'd like reserve a table under the name Lemony Snicket just to hear them be like, Lemony Snicket, like party for, or like pick up our pizza that way. Um, we made up like all kinds of cocktails called Lemony Snicket. And it was just a phrase that kind of echoed in my little post-collegiate crowd. Um, but my first book was about uh, was about high school students, the basic eight. And so um, some editors at some publishing houses were interested in like if I might write something for young people. And I mean, at the time I just thought like anybody who wants me to do anything, I mean, I'm sure you have the same thing starting out. It's like if someone is just like, here's a little thing you could do. I'm like, I'm the best at that. I'm the only one who could do it. I'll, I'll be there on Monday. And so I wanted to Speaking do it. Until you so make it, I think is what they call that. Yeah, well, and yeah, and just like, and if you can't do it, then you'll get fired. That's fine too. You know, like there's no, you didn't lose really. If you, yeah, I, I actually remember. I'm side. I'm digressing from my own story, but I actually remember when like a uh, boss where I lasted like four days said to me, like, "Why did you lie to me? Like, why did you tell me you could do this thing that you couldn't do?" And I was like, "What? Like, that's a silly question." So I could like work here and make money. What do you like? That's the whole system we have here. We set this world up this way. So I have to yeah. kind of fudge like, my way. You're my girlfriend. I'm not lying. You know, I'm not, it's not like some egregious lie about me. It was like, you asked if I could do a thing. And I was like, I bet I could fake doing that. It was like, nope, turns out you can't. My friend, it's like, okay, no hard feelings. Um, but he has- It wasn't anything like super important, like, you know, repairing somebody's car brakes or- no, I was like 23 years old. You know, anybody who let me do anything was already, that was already like a 50-50% chance of failure. You know, right. So it's not like I rushed into an operating room and I was like, I can do this. Ocular surgery, this is no problem. I don't even remember what it was. It was like an office job and it was like, do you know how to work, you know, Mac Pro or something? And I was like, yeah, sure. Like, I don't know what that is, but it's some stupid computer thing. How hard can it be? Too hard was the answer. Uh, but anyway, where was I? No, I think I just got interested. I think I liked the idea of the space that you have for books when you're young, you know, that you want to be attached to it, that you want to live in it. And um, 
And so when I started writing for children, I could feel that I could feel kind of moving into that space. And that felt like a good space to live in. Um, and it's more fun um, than anything else that I do. I enjoy a lot of everything that I do, but like being in the kind of space where like a 10 year old is thinking about a book is really fun for me. That feels delicious. It's a really, it's a really powerful medium. I mean, you're, you're giving kids a form of escapism, right? And at the same time, they're being educated. And, and, and that's a really, really great feeling. I mean, as a young kid, when I was a kid, I mean, I remember reading and just being like totally into it. Granted, my dyslexia slowed down the process, but yeah. I still got to have that imagination effect happening when I'm reading and it's like wanting to be in that time and that place. And it's, I think you created something that people just constantly keep going back to. And it's like, this is going to go like crazy. When I told when it showed up yesterday at the house, Tatiana comes running over. She's like, Ooh, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I just, I, it's, it's something you can carry with you. A good book is something that, that can stay with you. And I like that kind of ambiguous part of the mind where you, you know you're not reading, but you're thinking about the story anyway. And in children, that's somewhat stronger. But I mean, I meant it when I said it's the same thing you do, because I think what we both do has this thing in common. We're like, the best thing about food is eating it with people, right? It's like, you, I, I mean, your restaurants, you walk in, like everyone's having a fantastic time. Everyone's sitting around the table. They're having like the most delicious stuff they've ever eaten in their lives. And they're like laughing their asses off. I mean, that is like your restaurants in San Francisco are where I took people when I was like, all I want is like 11 people like folding their sides with laughter, you know, or listening intently to something like having some argument and the food is like unbelievably delicious, but also it's like its job is to like propel you into happiness. Right. And so it's almost like the food doesn't matter. Although if the food's no good, you're going to be like cranky and you're not going to have a good time. So it's this weird combination where it's like the most essential thing and the thing that matters the least. And that's kind of what I like about writing for children too, is that it's these words that will take them to the space, but like, that's where I want them to be, you know? I, and so you have to try to make language that guides them somewhere else, which for me is really cool. How do you, how do you get into that mode? I think there's, there's a lot of people that want to understand how to get to the point where you are. I mean, it's, it's really important. And I think that the, this whole podcast series is about inspiration and people learning and, and, and growing from these experiences that other people have had in getting to the top of their game. You, you graduated uh, from Wellesley you, you have really honed the craft. How do you explain that to, to a, somebody who's a young budding writer who wants to, whether it be writing for children or writing, you know, anything, because it, it's not an easy task. I mean. No, I mean, it's almost like what we were saying about parenting. It's like, there's a certain amount of drudgery, particularly when you're trying to get good. But even after you know what you're doing, you just, there's a lot, you have to write so much crap to write well, like so much crap. And so you have to like, you have to keep doing it. And particularly when you're starting out, um, I mean, I just, I tell people sometimes they're like, oh, I wrote like 50 pages of a book and then I got stuck. I didn't know what to do. And like, I don't think it's very good. And I was like, okay, but like, good, you gotta go, you gotta write another 50 pages. You gotta keep working on it. And I mean, what helps me in terms of like the actual process is, um, 
I go completely analog. I write on legal pads and I don't, I like to go places. It's one of the things I missed most during the pandemic was to go to a cafe or like a crummy diner or a library or um, other kind of weird spaces where you can sit and write and people will leave you alone. And I loved being that completely detached. It was like literally no one knew where I was, even though I wasn't that far from home often, but that I was sitting and doing that. And I think um, it's hard for people whose jobs are on the same machine that is bringing you like the news of the day and the text from your mom and like the emails about what you're supposed to do tomorrow. It's really hard to do work on that same machine. And so I'm always glad to be on a machine that is like not telling me it's not like the new trailer just dropped for something like when do you want to watch that for a while and then like why don't you check out the president's doing oh my god like that's a disaster when, who hates the president i want to read that essay and then before you know it, it's like two hours later and you haven't done anything and you're like stressed and empty so i like being separate from the like churning daily digital culture that's causing everyone pain and stress when you go to those different environments do those do those inspire some of your writing is there things that you see that 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 you know, click a box or make yeah, for sure. And also, I, the more boring it is, like boring is the stuff you don't remember, right? And so, um, if I go to a cafe and I'm working, and then I see someone like fiddling with the door to the bathroom, and like the it's like a bad door, I'm like, oh yeah, bad doors. Like, and then I'm whatever room I'm trying to describe in the book, I'm like, there's something, what can I make that's like badly put together? Because you notice that, but that's not something that you notice like when you're thinking about inspiration, right? It's something you just, you have to, it has to be kind of poked back into your head. So you that and like other people, I mean, it's um, another writer I know told me that during COVID he missed strangers more than his friends, you know, because it's like your friends, you're like, okay, okay, here we go with like a Zoom drink, but like strangers, you don't get to like just bump up against somebody and um and i like that a lot too just hearing like little snatches of conversation or just thinking about a type of person you haven't thought for a while you know you see them and you're like oh yeah you like ah, i haven't seen this for a while i gotta put you in there like <laughs> character development from strangers yeah exactly you know like you're a snappy dresser but you're really boring that's interesting let's, let's play with that let's see where that goes so yeah other people and little things in the surroundings yeah um and I think, again, if like if you're off screen, you're more open to that, right? It's like if you take a walk, you're going to see a bunch of stuff. If you take a walk with your phone, you know, you're going to be like, oh, here's Joe Biden taking a walk with me. <laughs> it's interesting how much the phone has taken away from the ability for people to focus on their craft at hand. Yeah, I mean, I was like... I resisted a cell phone for as long as I possibly could. I didn't have one for so long. And then basically when my son became a teenager and and when he became the age, like you could no longer deny him a phone. Like when he's just like, that is how every human being that I socialize with is like making plans and talking to each other. You know, I think he really was like, you either gotta homeschool me, like, you know, like we either gotta live like Quakers or like, I gotta get a phone. And so then I was like, well, now I wanna talk to you. So like, I gotta get a phone. And then of course it's addictive. You know, it's like you, you're you like, I can get a car anywhere. I can find out what the special place is. Like, I don't have to remember the number, the name of that album anymore. They remember it for me. Like everything, it just becomes this like depository. So yeah, it's really hard. And I'm not surprised that 
people get really easily distracted from it. But I try to keep that as far away from me as possible too. I like that you are working analog because I'm very much so. Yeah. I well, not only that, but I mean, your like your industry is one of those things that like really can't be replaced digitally. You know, like you can order your food delivered, but like there's no someone's chopping an onion someplace. Yeah, there's, there's no, no robots doing the work. That yeah. means there can be. You can buy pre pre chopped things, but they always taste funky. I think it's a, it's a really interesting, you know, process to think about. The you know, you go from a typewriter, the old you know. Yeah. There was a big joke in the house the other day. Um, you know, I, I choose a form of skiing, which is telemark, which is the old school way. Yeah. And one of the kids was like, well, you know, the world's progressed. You know, they, they now have new modern skis where your heel doesn't come up. And I was like, uh-huh. Like, I, I enjoy it, right? Some people still enjoy typing on a typewriter. And, and I use that as an example. He's like, but we don't need typewriters anymore. I was like, well, the keyboard still hasn't changed, dude. It came from a typewriter. <laughs> so they, they get kind of <laughs> they get kind of lost and forget, like, what it's like to leave the house and, you know, not have low, basically I call the phone a low jack. So you know where your children are all the time. Yeah. But, but I mean, I like the, definitely the, the movement of phones where they were used to be attached to buildings, that part seems made up. You know, when you're like, yeah, there used to be a phone like in a house and then you'd call because you thought a person that you wanted to talk to was also in that house. But sometimes there is another person in the house instead. And so they picked up the phone like no one picks up someone else's phone now. I mean, often the technology wise, you can't do it, but like that, yeah, you know, like, oh, I wonder if the restaurant's crowded. Let's, we're gonna call the restaurant. Let's just call them. There's a phone inside the restaurant. They're gonna pick up and be like, yeah, it's not crowded. All that sounds crazy. Yeah, the, like now you point kids are like, do you know what that is? And they see the, they see the phone booth on the side of the road. They're like, no idea. No. Yeah, they're like, that's where a guy pees. <laughs> I wasn't going to go there, but you're right. You're definitely right. <laughs> Henceforth, the penny loafer became the dime loafer to the quarter loafer to use the in the money in your pocket to make a phone call. <laughs> was that right? Was the coin for a phone? For a I don't ever think there was a penny phone. I think it was probably, I don't yeah. know. Probably, but I remember people putting change in there for phone calls. Yeah, I definitely, yeah. Wow, I never thought about that. I guess it was, yeah, I guess it was so you can make a call. Who knows? Know. Yeah. So you have also done books, not just for children. I mean, yeah. I've got a whole slew. And, and those are under the Daniel Handler pseudonym. That's you. That's me. Oh, there they are. Yeah. There you go. You got the marriage book. You got the sex book. What else you got? I've been trying to read the books. Oh, you got the uh, Violence Among Teenage Girls and Old People book. Yeah, you got a lot of them. Thank you. You're so sweet to keep buying them. Of course. Come on. You know, and I, and I think I like the, you know, the fact that you have such a varying range of all different things, but also it's, it, everything goes back to and connects with the people. And like we were just talking about before, that people watching, that whole, yeah. like, that is a powerful powerful tool actually it sounds like for you oh absolutely i mean it's just like free material you know <laughs> like and i mean you held up we are pirates like that um is about some teenage girls and they team up with some old people who live in an uh, assisted living center basically and they steal a boat and they commit acts of piracy in the san francisco bay 
And like part of that was from a lot of public transportation riding um, where I would take a bus to like a cafe to work. And often at the end of the day, it would also be the end of a school day. So I'd be like on a bus with like high school students. And I'm of course totally invisible to them. So, you know, so they don't think anyone's listening to them. And they're and they're fascinating. And like I began to see like like angry girls, like gangs of angry girls, and kind of like as this wave of feminism, I think, kind of hit like adolescent, like just girls who were like angry at guys and like, you know, stuff had happened and to hear them like seething and being angry, I was like, oh, this is great. I can't wait for this. You know, and so then when I started to think about like, I think I'll write a pirate book. I think pirates would be fun. I was like, oh, those angry girls, they're gonna do it so well. And, you know, and it's like, that's only cause I took the bus. It's only cause I wandered around. I mean, I have nieces and, you know, friends who have daughters and things like that, but like you, you don't get to eavesdrop on them. You don't get to see them as they are with their peers. Even your own kids, you don't really get to see how they are with those peers. You know, you get like a few snatches of conversation if they have people over and they forget that you're in the house. You know, you walk down the hallway, you just hear, it's like even a different tone of voice, all that magic. And then that, you appear and then all of a sudden it shuts off. The, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Who are you talking about? Right. They're just like, I mean, uh, we were talking about American history. It's like they don't even know. Yeah, they can't even guess what you think would be an appropriate topic of conversation because they're so, they think of you as so old. Yeah. And um, I, yeah, so I, so going out and about and looking at strangers, looking at eavesdropping on people is really something that I miss. I'm going to be traveling for the first time. I haven't been on an airplane this whole time. I'm going to be going soon a couple places to promote this book and like the airport is going to be finally like a bunch of strangers. I'm going to miss that. I mean, it's going to be very exciting. Are you going to wear like a really cool, like, are you going to get like a, a underwater helmet or something really cool to travel with to make it? Uh, even Could be fun. I guess so. Yeah. I don't know. It's, I mean, I, I don't have any, I'm vaccinated and I don't have any anxiety about, catching things about yeah, it i'm yeah. kind of fatalistic about it which i don't i'm not trying to encourage any people not anybody not to do the right thing but i just um i don't i'm not possessed with anxiety about it like i'm just like well i hope i don't die but i'm definitely going to someday so <laughs> it's uh <clears throat> so let's talk about the transition from it being on paper yeah onto the television and screen that was a really, really crazy big thing. Yeah, it's really hard. Um, both times it's really hard. I mean, um, you know, film is a collaborative medium. There's no getting around it. You can't possibly do everything yourself. You know, even like the deepest film auteur still has like hundreds of people around who are doing stuff. And um, and so it's, it's it's really hard to uh, work with other people's visions and you want them to get excited and do the best thing that they can do, but you also want your, you don't want them to step all over your thing. And then um, it's really expensive, particularly a series of unfortunate events, which has a whole world that you have to kind of build. You know, it's not like five people in the present day where you can like find the best apartment to film it. You got to build all this stuff and it's really expensive. And um, I'm sure it's the same in your business. like. The people who are in charge of saying 
like, okay, it's now time to spend this money or petrified all the time because it's like an ocean of money and they don't want to lose it. If they lose it, they're going to get fired. And so you have to kind of, you have to write in such a way that sells them making it all the time, which is a different trick from, from writing in a book. Like if you write a book, you want to fire up people's imagination. If you write a script, you have to be like, this script is going to be so exciting when we film it that like you're going to feel okay about writing up these huge checks. I guess they don't really write checks, whatever they do. Transfer or whatever they I do. I picture like the money in the silo and they open it and then it just comes pouring out and like the costume guy's like, oh, here's my budget, which is, I don't think that's how it actually goes. So but they, Yeah, but like in film and television, it's the money. Everyone's terrified about the money all the time. Did you find that you had, like you were just saying a moment ago, you have to change the way that the writing happens for the screen. So yeah. are they looking for that? I'm sure you've heard this. We need the arc, the story arc. Yeah, well, they always have some were, I mean, for when I started with Netflix, they were all into leaning in because, um, you know, there'd been that book, Lean In, which was basically telling executives that to pretend that you're listening, you should lean in, which I thought was funny that they were like, we need to like, how can we get people to lean in? I was like, how can we get people to fake being interested? I, like, let's try interesting them. <laughs> Just make it so they want to watch it. It's crazy. Yeah, That's a, that is like, you know, you want that return, just like in a restaurant, you want the return guest, you want that viewer, you want that loyal, you know, believer to come back over and over again. And yeah. you know, the new book comes out, you know, they're going to go straight to the store or pre-order it. And right. you come back and watch it on the screen. And in general, that kind of engagement, no matter what it is, comes from just really interesting stuff. And it's unpredictable in certain ways. You know, it's like you never know what's going to taste so good that people are going to want to go back and back. You're never going to know what story is going to draw more people in than another story. But I think when you start working for large companies that produce that kind of thing, they want to believe in a formula. So they have, they just, so it's the same with like arc or leaning in. It's like they always have some magic phrase. And they'll come in sometimes because there'll be some like company-wide meeting where people will be like, this is the new phrase. And then we'll come in and be like, okay, everybody, like this is like our show's got to be this. And I I learned to stop being like, that's not even a real word or something, you know, because <laughs> I just learned to be like, yeah, you know, sure, sounds good. Like, but what it reminded me of most is like when I was living in the in a, a dorm in college, and there'd always be like one guy at the end of the hallway who would like get stoned in the middle of the night and have some crazy idea, you know? So we'd just like open the doors and be like, you know, we got to do like bacon wrapped ice cream. You know, we'd be like, go to bed, Milo. This is like, it's too late. That's what it reminded me of. So film people would come in with like a hot idea. So yeah, I mean, I'm working on a project now and like um, when they, uh, when it started, the buzzword was toxic masculinity. They were like, this project is gonna like tackle toxic masculinity in this way. And now um, they're referring to it almost as the opposite. They're like, it's gonna be the, like, they have, a, they have new buzz phrases for it. And uh, it's- Change a lot of those that. Yeah. But I mean, it's because like you can't, there is no magic formula for getting people excited. You just have to be excited about it. And you have to, you know, work with people who can present it in such a way that maybe people will get excited. But when you're working with a large company, they think there's a formula for it. Did you find, did you enjoy the collaboration and working with all those others? Did you learn a lot from them? Did you- I learned a lot, yeah. And parts of it I really enjoyed um, and parts were terrible. But um, 
but it's, and it, but I mean, it felt good for me. Like it felt, I'm usually by myself doing my thing and it felt good for me. So um, I had a really good writer's room. I'm gesturing this way because we met in my dining room. Um, and I got these writers together and that was really fun to work with them. And then it's really fun to just watch them kind of grow and um, get their own, stick out their own careers as a result. Like one of the writers in my room, Joe Trace, just won an Emmy for another project that he did. And that just makes me happy. He was like, you know, like a young dude starting out. This was like his big gig to get into this writer's room. And um, I, uh, he and I were, didn't work very much together at the beginning. And then we started working together a lot and it was really great. And so those lessons about working with people and trying to make people happy, it was the first time that I was um, a real boss like really had to think about how to get other people to work together in an inspirational way and really think about to make them feel like they're not getting exploited or ripped off or stuff like that. And that was really new to me. I had never done that before. And, um, and you know, the, trying to learn that like, you, you want to be the cool boss, but you but like, you can't just spoil everybody all the time. It doesn't make, it doesn't make you a good boss, all that stuff. That was good. And it becomes non-effective Pro production levels go down, but also, I mean, you became a mentor. And, and that must feel really great that, you know, like you just said, he wanted to yeah. writing and you pushed. I mean, I had, I had some really good people early in, in my writing attempts who were really good for me. I had a great uh, professor at Wesleyan who I kept in touch with. Um, and then when I started writing children's books, I met some children's authors who were, had been done, who'd been doing it for a while. And um, I felt that that nurturing, and that's like night and day. If you feel like someone, you can call someone with a stupid question, um, that's it's really empowering. People always talk about it like it's like the passing on of wisdom, but I think it's just like when you're just like, I don't know what this phrase means, and like, I I mean, I can't ask the people I'm working with because I'll reveal myself to be as deep an idiot as I am, you know? Like I need to do it, and so. Um, yeah, so I try to do that if I meet um, younger writers, or sometimes they're not even that much younger, they're just starting out. But if I meet people who are doing something, I try to say, like, there's a network, let's, come on, we got to um, help out people who are in the state we were in. That's amazing. So here's a good question then. So I have been writing um, cookbooks, as you know. Yeah. And when you're doing it, I mean, when I was in school, they always said, don't write like you speak. Right now, when I'm doing the cookbooks, they're like, this doesn't sound like you. Can you write like you speak? It's very confusing because <laughs> you're getting <laughs> two different messages. Your teachers were saying, don't write like you speak. It's ridiculous. And then the publisher is saying, please, this doesn't sound like you. Why? Well, I was taught not to. Well, I mean, I think the trouble with reading and writing in education is that um, you end up getting it from this academic perspective that some people use for the rest of their lives, but most people don't. And it's the same with reading. It's like most people, what, how they read is that they pick up a book and they find it interesting and they think about it for a while and they don't like it or whatever. And that in, in school, as you grow older, you're kind of taught that there's like a secret code. You know, you're like, we're gonna read Moby Dick and it's like, you're not gonna understand it. And then I'm gonna explain this secret code and then you're gonna write this secret code down in a three-page paper that sounds like nothing you would ever say in this world or the next. And like, that's just not a great game to learn if you're not gonna be an English professor. 
if you are going to be an English professor, I guess that's what you have to learn, but it's not how to do it. So yeah, I think actually when I look at writers, I they are always make a breakthrough when they start writing like I know them to be. Like if I know them personally and then I read their book and I'm like, oh, that's you, they're always onto something. So Andy Greer, Andrew Sean Greer is a big friend of mine and he's written a bunch of lovely books, but always in person, he was hilarious. And his books were always really sweet. And then finally he started writing, he started putting humor in the books where his books were getting funnier and funnier. And I was like, oh, now he's like, now he's cooking. And I think it's that way too. So yeah, and I mean, from a cookbook from you, nobody wants a cookbook from you that opens with like, Italy is a wonderful country with a rich history. Like, <laughs> but how, how do you explain somebody to get over that hurdle? Because that is, I mean, I struggle with that. And look, like that, it's not, writing is not my life, right? I, I, you know, I love to yeah. read, as you can see, these are all cookbooks. This is just, this is some of a 3000 cookbook collection. I love reading them, but I think there's a point in which when you try to write something, you want it to, like, like I said a moment ago, I do want it to sound like me. How does that person get over that hump of transitioning to that level, that ability to be able to write like they speak or to communicate in a way that people feel it's their voice? I mean, I think you just got to keep doing it. I think kind of excising your own self-consciousness or kind of lessons that you've been taught that stick to you like baggage, you know, that aren't doing you any good. There's some lessons you keep with you all your life because they're helping you, but there's some stuff that's just like not helping you. And I think it just takes time, but I think you have to, you have to have to keep on doing it. And I think you will begin to sense like, oh, here's, this is, this is what I am. This is really what I want to do. And it's hard because particularly when you're starting, I think it's like, you don't know what you're doing. So you're just trying to, you're desperately flailing around. But yeah, you got to get rid of that stuff. It's like uh, you want that, like I joke every time I get a COVID test, I'm like, can you take away that memory? Maybe I can ask you <laughs> that part of my from <laughs> Yeah. But I mean, you, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I think you and I have clicked a little bit. And also why, like, I love going to your restaurants is because your restaurants have that thing that is like, it is inventive and it is delicious, but it's like not pretentious. And whenever, like when you're actually there and you stop by and I'm like, what should I eat? And you're always like, ah, the salmon. But you're, you know, you're not just like, let me tell you an interesting story. So there's like a farm on the other side of the hill where they do this special thing because that, that's like my least favorite restaurant thing. Oh, it's terrible. And you like, and you're, and so your restaurants are like hanging out with you. Even when you're not there, they're like hanging out with you because the waiters are like, okay, we did something crazy with oysters. Like, here's the deal. They don't say like oysters, which have a wonderful, you know, uh, no certain pungency to them. Yeah. And I'm going to give you a lesson about the 11 kinds of oysters. And you're like, oh, but I'm with my friends. Please stop talking. Like, go bring us a bunch of cocktails and then some good food. That's all we want. And, um, and I don't know how you figure that out or how long it, took but like that's really important and particularly I think in where I am where like pretentious restaurants there's so many pretentious restaurants in San Francisco that are just like insufferable and then my wife always teases me but once she and I went out to this place where they set up tables in the middle of a field and they're like bring you all this food and they're all it's like an endless story they're telling you every every story about every bite and finally at the end they said do you want to go see where the strawberries are from and I was like if they're from a volcano, then yes. <laughs> like if they're made by unicorns, 
I totally want to go see where they're from. But are they strawberry plants? I think they're strawberry plants. I'm like, no, I don't want to go see a strawberry plant. I've seen one before. What? Like, I have one in a pot in my backyard. <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, I'm paying you in cash. You want to go see the ATM where I got it out? Are you good? <laughs> You want to go see it? <laughs> and that's what it felt like. So I'm glad that, uh, that you found your own personality in your restaurants. And for people who are worried that their own personality is getting blocked in their work, yeah, you just got to excise it. You got to go in through the nose as with a COVID test and excise it. <laughs> have you had to be tested a lot? I bet you have. I have, yeah. Once yeah. I, started, I started doing a bunch of TV again and there's a massive protocols through uh, through the television uh, world where it's like one one test two days prior, test day prior, test on site, test during, test when leaving, and then test the day after you get home to make sure for tracing purposes. Right. So, I mean, it's it's good. It's allowed it's allowed the industry to keep moving and. Yeah. Yeah. No. Of course. Um, I was just curious. I hadn't really thought that much on like you. Um, yeah, the 10th grade dance was taken away. I think I lost part of my first track meet where I fell down. You know, I told them which direction to go. <laughs> I feel like that 10th grade dance was probably blurry anyway. No, actually, you I know, didn't know you in 10th grade. I was, I was not a partier. I was, I was not that. I was not the. That you can still be blurry. I'm not saying you were on drugs. Well, it probably is blurry just from like dance. the old age. But no, so no. let's talk about your musical career. Okay. Which a lot of people don't. You have done something, one, with my uh, brother-in-law, Michael Hurst. I have, yeah. Michael, uh, radio. Michael Hurst of One Ring Zero. Yeah. One Ring Zero, radio, you wrote radio. And yeah. the magnetic fields. Yeah. I mean, how- You're multifaceted. You're not, you're not just a writer. You're a, you're a musician. Yeah, I mean, what I really like about working with Stephen Merritt and the Magnetic Fields is that he is the absolutely in charge. He writes all of those songs. He plays most of the instruments. He records much of the records. He produces and mixes them all. He does all these arrangements. And um, watching him work is really amazing. And so, and it feels good for me kind of therapeutically to just be like, definitely one of the people playing a little thing. I'll come into the recording studio, we'll work for a couple of days, I'll put these little things down. If we're up on stage, it's like, okay, it's time to play these little things, but it's not my show at all. It's his show, but also he's so good at it. And every time I work with him in a studio, he'll have sent a demo for a song and sometimes they're really hitting, but oftentimes with the demo, I'm like, okay, if you say so, like, you know how to write a song and this like sounds okay but I don't really know what's gonna happen and then we'll work for two days I mean he's based in New York usually but um he there's another musician who works with him here there are a couple other ones and he'll fly out to San Francisco and he'll rent a studio for like a week and we'll all have our two or three days and I'll watch the song get built up from the demo and so like two days later I'm like holding back tears as I listened to the song. And like two days previously, I was like, he's usually good, but I don't, I'm, this isn't very good. And to watch that do it and the way he works, he's like kind of a perfectionist, but he's super into the happy accidents. And um, he, it's fun to watch the studio guys because they're kind of uptight electrician types. And he starts being like, 
Can you put that microphone like behind some sheets of newspaper that are rattling against it? I want to see if like the rattles work. And they're like, it's so like goes against their perfectionism. But then he'll find an engineer who's like, I tried it with newspaper, but try it with wax. Listen to this thing with wax paper. The wax paper is going to be better. And then it, they start working in that way and you watch that build up and it's just really great to be around. Um, so, I mean, I got the gig because I play the accordion and not very many people play the accordion. So it's a, like if I played guitar as well as I played accordion, he wouldn't know. I never would have gotten any gigs. But like no one, they're like, oh, I don't know anyone else who plays the accordion. And then, um, and sometimes people call me and be like, we need someone really good who plays the accordion. I'm like, that isn't me. And they're like, do you know other people? And I'm like, I'm not going to help you find, like, let me in there. How about you decide he doesn't have to be that good? I'd rather go play with you. I'm not going to give my gig away to some good person. And so it's good to be near that. Yeah. But it's the same reason as like, I'd probably, I would love to be near you watching you do stuff, but like, I don't know what I do there. So you'd throw me out. Nah, there's always fun things to do. So what, I don't know, yeah, I think I think you'd get tired of me. I think no, the first hour you'd be like, oh, wow, he's watching me. I'm so flattered. And then you'd be like, Handler, get out of the way. Like you. What possessed you to play the accordion? Like, what was it like? Hey, you know, that looks really fun. Um, well, I took piano lessons my whole life. So I already, so the keyboard was an instrument that I could play. And then when I got to college, I wanted to be in a band because obviously that's the thing to do. Yeah, and it was like the late 80s, early 90s when no keyboard instruments were cool. Remember that like horrible time where like synthesizers were all the like- Casio really wanted to be, Yeah, so like you had to, everyone had to be like authentic, which is so tiresome. I feel like sometimes that's coming back now. It's like, it's for real. It's like, it isn't for real, it was made for you. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I, so I bought an accordion at the Colombo Brothers Accordion Factory in Marin and I brought it to college. And so I have often said, I'm like the only person who took up the accordion basically to meet women. So. <laughs> yeah, but like you're able to be in a bunch of bands because everyone's like, oh, an accordion, we'll try that. Like, why not? Come on, get on stage with us for a couple numbers. What's the worst that could happen? So it's pretty fun. That's amazing. So do you play an instrument? No. No, nothing at all? Um, no. Not no, the, the the tune the grill fork at the restaurant. Okay, because I can picture you being like a bassist in a really horrible band when you were in high school. No, no, I I never picked up music. It was never. I mean, I love listening to it, and it's a real big part of my life. But physically playing an instrument was just I wasn't I wasn't uh, having dyslexia too. Also trying to read notes, everything's like oh right yeah doesn't doesn't work. Neither did algebra. Whoever thought the idea of putting numbers and letters to equal a math equation was a good idea. Who was that fool? Some people really get turned on by math. Well, that's uh, great. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing, but like- I don't know, yeah. But I mean, I think it's like, if it, I mean, you know, when you look at uh, couples sometimes and you're like, who in the world would find that person attractive? And the answer is that person right there standing next to them, I'm watching it happen. Yeah. And I feel that way with like subjects that I'm not interested in too. It's like someone thinks algebra is hot. Someone cannot wait to go take algebra home. Oh, yeah, I can't. I like. Let, let's just say I did not pass algebra. <laughs> well, there's still time. You can go back and finish. No, your... thank you. I've tried to help my son with his homework. Holy crap! I'm like, dude, don't. No, go ask. Yeah, me. that is like a the. There's a weird divergence when you're raising a kid when the homework gets 
right? Because like when they're eight, you're like, let me help you with that two plus two you're working so hard on. And then suddenly they just start yeah. until you can't even fathom the distance between their homework. Yeah, and then it's, it's like- kind of liberating because your evenings are free suddenly. You know, you're like, yeah, no one's gonna ask me for help. Like, I feel bad though. I feel like I should be helping or doing something. And then I'm just like, yeah, I'm gonna get them an F. Man. I just better stay out of the way. I just always say like, this is for sure the most you ever have to work in your whole life is when you're an adolescent. People say it's when you're an adult, but it isn't really. Like when you're an adult, you like, you can choose to become a workaholic like Chris, or you can, you can, do, you can arrange your life in some other way. But when you're in high school, it's like you have to do, if no one would take the job of high school student if it were a job. Like if, if you were like, Chris, Daniel, my, my, my restaurants went under, do you have a job? And I was like, yeah, I have a job. It starts at 8.30 in the morning, first of all. We need you to get to this room and think really hard about United States history for 45 minutes. And then a bell rings and we want you to run down a corridor and when you get to the end of the corridor, go into another room, and there you're going to think about capturing the rye. And you do that for the rest of the day. And people will be like, that's an insane job. I don't want that job. And we give that job, not only do we give it to gazillions of people, but we give it to people whose brains and bodies are like the least equipped for that. Like we give it to the people whose brains and bodies are going completely out of control. And they should be doing like one thing very calmly. Instead, we're just like... Like run down the hallway. Now you're in a play. Like, <laughs> oh, you know, that's actually a really good point. We like, if we compare the way that ma other mammals are treated by their parents, it's like coddling and making sure they're safe and teaching life skills. And we're like, all right, go to school, head off, you know, next, just like you said. I guess it depends on the species. You do see those species who are just like, okay, you hatched out of the egg like 10 minutes ago. It's time to be hunting. You know, and the babies are like, but I'm just, it's just the world of like, nope, nope, gotta fly, gotta hunt. You gotta find grubs in like 20 minutes or you're gonna die. Yeah, so it depends on the species, I guess. <laughs> so where's your book tour headed? Where are you headed for this book tour? Not very many places, mostly on the screen because everyone's nervous. I'm gonna go to Chicago because the, there's a festival there that's um, outdoors. And I have a bunch of stuff scheduled for the fall. We're all just kind of rolling the dice and seeing. I don't know. I'm in favor of scheduling everything and canceling it at the last minute because everyone understands. But some people are nervous. It's a weird time because my instinct is not to live by fear, right? If anyone's ever like, I'm anxious about this. I don't want to do it. I'm like, that's not a good reason. But I'm like, well, it is a real pandemic. Yeah. So we have to let some anxiety in. Like, yeah, we do. Yeah, That's definitely the truth. So one of the one of the things I'm curious about: how long does it take, start to finish? Like you come up with the, the 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 idea and you're working it out. How long does it take, start to finish? Like for instance, let's let's just talk about poison for breakfast. What was this? You know, start to finish. Like, did you have previous ideas after you finished the last one? How how does that work? How does that process work? I mean, I had an idea for this book and. I, and I was, I was chewing it over, but I didn't know really if it was like a book length idea or not, which is something that happens to me. Like I have an idea and I'm like, I, I kind of see where it takes me and I don't know what it is. But then I had this luxury of um, having a more time free than I'd had. And it was the summer, they were just beginning to film a series of unfortunate events. And like the company had like, 
push me away from it as usually happens with me in large entertainment companies. Like they love me for a while and they're like, oh, get out of here. And so I thought I was gonna be like on a set every day watching this thing happen. And instead I had this chunk of time and I thought instead of figuring out if this is like a book idea, instead of like taking long walks and taking some notes and thinking about it for a while, maybe just dive in because no one knows that you're doing it. It was like, I felt like a magic secret. And so I just started writing it. I wrote some of it in a library uh, in Massachusetts, most of it, and then some of it in a library in Vancouver where they were filming the show. And no one knew I was working on it. So then I had this like first draft of this strange book. Cause I mean, we haven't talked about the book a lot, which is fine, but it's like, oh, it's, we're getting like, there. It's, it's weird for me. I feel it's like it's a weird book. And um, I, and so I, I kind of hit it for a while. I hit it all that fall. And then when the new year came, I took it out again and I worked and then I, I like worked it up. So that was like, I, I don't know how many, you know, I never know how many months, what does it count? If, it, if it's sitting in a box and no one's looking at it, I don't know if that counts as time that I'm working on it. And then it took a while to publish this book because, um, it's a strange book um, compared to the other Lemony Snicket books. It has um, like a more meandering, it's more philosophical. It touches upon some things that made some children's publishers uncomfortable. So they had to think about that for a while. Um, and now it's out. So this has been a kind of a long journey from the idea to the publication. That took a few years, but usually I like to, I kind of write a first draft in like a frenzy of activity and then I put it in a box. And I, I like to put it away for like a year, but sometimes I, it can't be that long. And sometimes it turns out to be longer, but I love putting it away because I put it away and then I kind of half remember it and then it comes up again and I'm like, oh, here it is. I know how to make this better. Like I know how, I know how to do this. I'm not in the first rush of thinking everything's terrific. I'm in a more uh, discerning brain. So you let it marinate. Yeah. Now I knew you'd find a metaphor. Yeah, you let it marinate. Well, I mean, you I mean, it's like you get the initial idea out and you put it down and then you come back to it after you've like you're you just process it internally and then you just spit it all out. That's and do, you have, do you have ideas like that that come to you for changing something? Yeah, I mean, food wise, it's always the same way. You know, you have this initial idea and you put it out and you taste it and you just kind of the difference. But have you ever been like serving your 1000th whatever chicken dish that you've made and then you're like oh like oh chestnuts or whatever like oh i should have been doing this all okay like I've, yeah, this is better that happens yeah. a lot it happens a lot you know I like feel for the people who have the first version you know and it's funny because people talk <laughs> about that actually a lot they're like is it when you do a dish is it like start to finish and then it goes right to the plate sometimes it is because it works but then there's always ways to tweak things and make it better. Yeah. Um, and I think you get in a mindset of, well, I have to do it now because the season's going to change and that product that I was working with right. is going to go away. So I'm trying to get it when it's the product's at its peak. I don't want it to vanish because some of these things have such a short uh, timeline. And that's like, then you start, you do the one and it's on the menu and then you start reiterating and like playing and things are evolving as it goes. But then it just creates turmoil for your staff because they're like, well, it looks different than yesterday. And what did you do different? And why did you change it? And the guests really liked it yesterday. So I think yeah, there's, there's that happy medium of making the guests really happy, wanting to return for that flavor profile, but also at the same time, 
finding the best balance for what we're trying to do. Yeah, you really nail that so well. I mean, and again, it's like there's something I think you really balance this like real inventive streak with also like real accessibility, right? Like I've been to so many restaurants where they're like, we, we're doing all this invention. I'm like, I know, but like then it turns out to be like a square of weird mousse on top of something that like, I know you like wilted it in a special way, but it just looks wilted. And <laughs> you're right, I've never had it before. There's no way I could make it at home, but it's not good though. And that I feel like you're, it's, your restaurants are always full of like, I've never seen anything like this before. And also like, but it tastes, but it's, it's accessible. It's like delicious in my mouth, like something that I've had all the time, which is like, that's a rare blend. And it's certainly what I want to do. Like I like being inventive and experimental on the page, but I want people to read it. I don't want to be like a weirdo where people are like, I can see how that might be a good idea, but I don't want to read it. I want people in there with me. Talk a little bit about this, you know, poison for breakfast. How did you come up with the name and give us a little, don't give us too much because yeah. you know what will happen, but you don't want to, you don't want to ruin it for everybody. But at the same time, you want to bring them in. So this is, I'm excited. Okay. I haven't had a, by the way, before you say anything, I haven't had a chance to read it. It showed up in a handwritten envelope yesterday at the door. <laughs> a FedEx envelope without a FedEx, <laughs> just said Chris Cosentino address sitting on the floor. Yeah, I think we figured out, like, they were like, we're going to FedEx it to him. And I was like, I can almost see that guy's house from here. Like, <laughs> We can cut down on the carbon footprint, like it's exactly a little bit today. Um, yeah, well, it is um, a, a book uh, that is kind of a murder mystery and kind of a philosophical, sociological meandering. Um, but basically, two. Th you just hit mute. You're muted. I am. Not anymore. You just hit the button. Oh. There you go. <laughs> All right. I um, heard. Start that one over. I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, two things kind of happened to me uh, at once. One is that I wrote a note to myself and I didn't recognize the handwriting. So I found this note and I was like, who said this to me? And that was interesting to me to think about like a, like a threatening note arriving. It wasn't a threat, but like a mysterious note arriving. And then um, I remembered that when my son was really little, I said to him, um, I was trying to make him eat something. And I was like, eat this, it's like, it's not poison. And he was like, yeah, but like, I'm getting older and older. Like, so actually like when I eat this, I'm getting closer to death. So it is kind of poison. Which I thought was amazing. And I thought about for like a year before I started the book. And so um, both those things happened. And also I got interested in writing something that was basically nonfiction for a young, for a, a younger audience. And that um, because I've done all these kind of narrative stories, I was interested in writing like a nonfiction book the way when you're a grown up, you read a nonfiction book, you know, that's like about something that happened or about an idea that you see places, you know, the way this podcast is like about an idea with examples. And that seemed interesting to me. So that's where it came from. But yeah, but Poison for Breakfast, it took me a while to find the exact title. But once I had 
poison for breakfast. I was like, that's exactly the title that I wanted all along. Um, and you know, poison is always really interesting, particularly when you're young. It's like poison. There's things that you can eat and you'll die. And particularly when you're young, when like there's already stuff you eat that you like don't like, or you don't understand, you don't want it in your mouth yet. And then there's like, and then you know that there's like a thing, there is a thing that is poison. Yeah. I remember we had a um a yard uh growing up. We had a tree in our yard that had berries that were poisonous. I remember my parents were like, oh yeah, those are poisonous. Don't eat them. I was like, but it's in our yard. Like we're like every that happens to every kid. And yeah. then how about apple seeds? Don't eat apple seeds. That's where strychnine comes from. Yeah. You do the math, it's like you need to eat three million apple seeds before we're actually kidding. Right. But I was like baffled, you know, it was, I was just kind of like, why is there poison? Like, why would there be anything poisonous? Why haven't we fixed that? We should get rid of everything poisonous in the world. Um, because, the, because your understanding of poison is from like, you know, creepy thrillers, you know, like yeah. drip, 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 instead of like poison, like the way we're, have already poisoned the planet and it's too late for all of us instead of that way. Yeah, we don't, yeah, that's another one. That'll be your next book. <laughs> um, what else? What else you got? What else do you want to talk about? So tell me a little bit more about, you know, where where will this journey take people? Um, a lot of it is about writing books, about writing and making books, because people were curious about how I did that. So some of even what I've talked to you about is in that book. Some of it is about... Um, other books and movies and memories I have that bring together these ideas. But basically it is kind of, it starts out as a murder mystery and it kind of starts um, wondering about death and thinking about death. And um, that was something that I was really interested in when I was a child, um, not only in kind of stories, whether it was the threat of death or people were dying, but that, um, but like that deep mystery of, of the life will stop and, um, I, and I think that young people like to think about it a lot and they're often chased away from that idea, right? The idea of like, don't be afraid. It's not gonna happen. This is like not something to worry about. And instead to kind of um, not to live with the fear, but to live with the idea, to live with the idea long enough that the fear becomes something else. So that was, was that the hot topic? Was that the, was that the, the hot button? about the publishing that was really the nerd. A little bit, yeah. There's some stuff about um, the settling of the United States in it, about um, the destruction of native cultures in it. Um, there's some, there's a, um, some stuff about a jazz uh, musician that kind of walks on the strange culture of race and exploitation that um, America's built, yeah. But I mean, these are all things that young people love to talk about. Yeah, that young people love to think about. Um, and there are things that don't have necessarily a super clear political argument. So I think that we're in a time where um, just kind of thinking about an idea and seeing where it goes is less fashionable than like having a hot take on it. It's not a hot take book. It's a it's slow simmer. Awesome. I can't wait. All right. So we're going to do what I like to call the rapid fire questions. Okay, I'm ready. No answer's wrong. It's just personal. They always say that and it's never true. Oh, no, no, this one, there's, there's, no, there's no right or wrong in this. It's just personal. <laughs> okay, so, right. so this is all based around food. So this is like the fun part. Okay. Easy part. Hamburger, hot dog. Hamburger. Ketchup or mustard? Mustard. 
Dijon or Delhi mustard? Delhi. Really? Yeah. But I would like like a horseradishy. Okay. I like a horseradishy mustard. Yeah. I like a Chinese mustard too. Oh yeah, Chinese mustard sounds good. I'm trying not to like break the binary of all your questions by refusing the answer. But oh, I'm, fine. There's, there's no, there's no, no. Yeah. Martini shaken or stirred? Uh, stirred. Because I like a gin martini. Oh, there, there was the next question. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, I, they always say it'll bruise the gin. And I, I mean, I don't even really know what that means. Um, but it was a nice thing. Like I learned that when I was young. I learned it because my we used to like to watch the movie Annie Mame in my family and they have a line about like, um, you don't want to bruise the gin. And I thought that was really funny. And then I taught it to my son when he was really little. And so he was like, I'm not going to bruise the gin. And so. Um, I remember you telling me that story. Yeah. yeah, he won't do it. Like now he'll make a cocktail for me now, but he's just like, Ugh. He's, like a, he's like a sour employee. But there was kind of a magic window where he would make a cocktail where he was way too young for it and he loved doing it. And so just company would come over and I'd be like, make everyone a Manhattan. He'd be like, right away. And, be like, huh? and they'd be like, what? He can't have a Manhattan. And I'm like, oh, he's not having one. He's just making them for us. Um, I remember you telling like me that bird. I was dying. Yeah. And a cocktail spoon is good. It's so much fun, more fun to stir than to shake. Yeah. Especially when they don't put the lid on and they go like this. <laughs> yeah, but you're never at home. I always shake over the sink because you you're never a hundred percent. No, that it's not that it's not going to fall apart in your hands. Yeah, for sure. Beef or pork? Well, beef. I mean, I was raised Jewish, so I didn't eat a lot of pork until I was like a teenager. Um, so I was I yeah I would say I would say beef. Granted, though, when you did come to Coxcomb, it was international waters. You were definitely down with the swine. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I, I, there's nothing I don't eat for any religious reasons. And there's hardly anything I don't eat. But um, but I wasn't raised with pork. And so, like, when I see it on the menu, it's, I, I'm not instinctively drawn to it. I'm instinctively drawn to, like, a good, a good steak or a good, yeah. Okay. So, nigiri or sashimi? That re that's really got to depend on where you're at, right? Like if you're at, if you're just like at a sushi place and you don't know it, then you're going to get nigiri because it might not be good. Like bad sashimi is the worst. That's the terrible thing. Yeah. Like if I was someplace where I knew it was going to be good, I would go sashimi. But like nigiri is more reliable. Sea urchin or caviar? Oh, that's, I got to have them both. I can't. I can't choose. I got both. Yeah. Like if I were at a restaurant and they were like, it either comes with sea urchin or caviar, I would be like, can I, you show me those again? And then I would just take them. <laughs> they're so good. And they're really good together. They are delicious together. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Pasta or noodles? That seems a little redundant. It seems like sleep or a nap. Well, they're different. Um, they're totally different. So are these questions like, I'm going to choose one for the rest of my life? No, they're just like, what you prefer. What, what, you, what, you, what you like, what you, what do you gravitate towards most? Like if you're going to go out, are you going to go, you know what? I prefer a cacio e pepe or I want a pho. So there's your noodle and then there's your. Pasta. In this town going out, I want a pho. 
There you go. See? Dumplings or ravioli? Dumplings. Burrito taco? Oh, burrito. Burrito, huh? I mean, yeah. They're kind of, I mean, you know it was invented here, right? Yeah, and but and they were just such a staple of my life from like 14 to 26. That was like 70% of what I ate were burritos from like one of four <laughs> restaurants. A lot of people so. It's like, <laughs> can't not have this. Yeah. Lobster or Dungeness crab? Dungeness crab. It's kind of yeah. story, right? Yeah, well, we are often in Cape Cod in the summer and the lobster is really good, um, but... I feel like the only thing with lobster is to have lobster and like Dungeness crab. It's like, you can, you know, you put a little of the pasta, you put a little on your steak, you put a little like a salad. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Dungeness crab is welcome anywhere. Raw oysters or raw clams? Raw oysters. Not many people dig the raw clams. I grew up with them. I love them. I like them, but, but I like a raw oyster. Yeah. Chocolate or fruit? Fruit. I don't really like. I'm. I don't have much of a sweet tooth. Which? What? What fruit? Um. I like. I mean, I like a blueberry. I like a stone fruit. Um. I have some figs in my fridge right now. But oh, right now is definitely fig. Figs are in full yeah. right now. I've never done this before, but I want to make a giant fig Newton. I want to make like a shortbread and then spread fresh figs all over it and another shortbread and cut it up and serve it. That's got to be good, right? Oh, for sure. Fig, about that be good? fig Newton cake. You can make a giant one. Yeah. Um, I actually have that recipe. I'll send it to you. Okay. Yeah, I want it. Last uh, one. Yeah, I like fruit. Okay, I'm ready. Coffee or tea? I like an espresso. If it's if it's actually coffee or tea, then yeah, I would well, like to tea. me, coffee falls under espresso, cappuccino, americano, yeah. you know, press like, coffee. I hardly ever want a cup of coffee, but I want an espresso like whenever I do a podcast, whenever, you know. <laughs> I do Americanos all the time. I'm, coffee. I'm kind of a coffee fanatic. Um I you do at Coxcomb, you used to not do tea. Correct. I remember. And I, this is, I, I went, I ate at Coxcomb right after Trump was elected with some friends and I had a nasty cold. And I remember that, that like, I was like, oh, I should stay home. I have a cold. And then I was like, I can't like a terrible president has just been elected. I need to like eat and drink with my friends right now. And I got there and um, they made me a hot toddy with the espresso water. And I remember that it came and I was like, Okay, but like, I knew they had hot water. Why do they sell tea here? What's the what's the anti tea stand? So what's your you just like coffee so much? You're like screw the tea people. You know, it's it's not that I dislike tea. I just feel that there's with coffee you can have an americano, you can have an espresso, a double espresso, right. right, a cappuccino. But when it comes to tea, there's there's like, it's like books, right? There's right. thousands of blends and flavors and, you know, everybody gets all butthurt if you don't have their special tea. It's like, is this decaffeinated tea? Is this green tea? Is this black tea? Is this Earl Grey? And it just keeps going and going and going. It becomes like your spice cabinet, right? It becomes too much. So that's, I was finally just like- I see that, yeah. I was just like, you know what? We're never gonna make everybody happy, 
right? So let's just not do it. Yeah. So, uh, it Actually, just- I always remember that I was with my mom once at this restaurant and my mom said, I'd like a cup of tea. What kind do you have? And that the server said, you know, all the regular kinds. And my mom was like, put off by it. And I was like, that's such a great answer. I mean, you there know? is, there's, if you think about it, there's so many varieties of tea. It can be overwhelming and then you have to have like a tea program and you have to have somebody really like figure it out and it's like is it loose leaf is it in a bag and then people have expectations of a restaurant having this certain experience and you right and i will say the like the tea menu at the terrible restaurant with the fancy paragraph that's really awful you know or they're like it's it's monkey picked and it's supposed to be good for dreaming i'm like give me a break man come on (laughs) How do you know it was monkey? But we called the monkeys and we told them which ones. So how do you know they picked yeah. the right ones? And is that less exploitative or more exploitative? <laughs> I don't know. There Wasn't there just a huge thing about that, about the exploitation of monkeys picking something recently? It was like some uh, fruit or I don't know. I, can't I mean, remember. I believe it. Yeah. There no, I mean, but I don't know how you would profit share with them or something. I don't know how, I don't know how to unionize a monkey. They get extra bananas at the end of the week. I don't know. Maybe that's not what they want. Maybe that's just a stereotype, man. You gotta get to go for that. Oh, you know, I think you just really got me right there. That's, yeah. I'm just gonna have to go wallow in my own self-pity of shame <laughs> my, for my assumption of monkey choice of banana eating. <laughs> Daniel, thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule. It's I, a pleasure to see you, my friend, and to speak you. with you. For sure. Let's, uh, once you're not on the Zoom travel doing your book tour, let's uh, let's have some coffee somewhere. Yeah, that's great. Let's like catch a rabbit and cook it and close a bar. I can do that. I know. I can't do any of those things. Well, that'd be fun. You, you know, maybe you guys come on over for dinner one night. Great. All right. All right. Sign off, my friend. Appreciate it. You have a great one. And so if everybody wants to check it out, Poison for Breakfast, Lemony Snicket. Oh, look at that. Get one too. Go one for yourself, everybody. Bye.